Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Prateek Singh. Based in Florida, Prateek is currently an independent Agile consultant, as well as the head of learning and development at ProCanban.org. You can follow him on Twitter, at SingPR, and check out the Drunk Agile Podcast on YouTube, which Prateek co-hosts with a uh, friend of the podcast, Dan Bacanti. Prateek is the author of the book, Scaling Simplified, A Practitioner's Guide to Scaling Flow. In the book, Pratik discusses how scaling agile practices in, orga- in, in organizations has become synonymous with overburdened and cumbersome frameworks that can create more problems than they solve, and how we need a simpler solution to the problem of scaling agile. In this interview, we're going to talk about Pratik's background and career, professional interest, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you very much, Pratik, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Really glad to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the career that you've built. Yeah, um, I grew up in India, in the northern part of India. But to uh, I went to school there and I lived there for for for, for the first 17, 18 years of my life. Um, it's it's uh, for those of you watching, you can see half a picture of my boarding school that's up there. Above, above the, the but yeah, I went to I went to boarding school there. I lived there. My my parents are from there. Um, I moved over to the United States when I was eighteen to attend the University of Florida, uh, computer computer science there, and then have been working in uh, as a software engineer or helping software engineers for the past two decades. Since then, um, I also got. Uh, Got, uh, got a master's in computer science. I did a master's in data analysis. It's just been a more and more studying and learning and, and then applying those things over the past whatever many years I've been doing that. Yeah. Is is that Dosco? Dosco? No. That's, oh, you think it was Dosco? No, that's uh, Lamartnia. That's Lamartnia College. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, so St. Bosco is also also pretty pretty big. Yeah, yeah. No, I have I have a friend from from India who has a, a similar background, except they they moved to he moved to Canada as a as a sort of teenager. Yeah, instead of instead of the states, but he went to Florida. He's from Bihar. Um, oh wow! Yeah, probably the other part of northern India. <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, my, where I grew up is Uttar Pradesh, which is literally right oh, yes. next to Bihar. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I visited there in 1995, so I got to. Yeah. Almost, I almost went to the Dune School, but that did not work out for, for 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 certain reasons. My mom did not want to let me go that early, so oh, I went to a boarding yeah. school a little later. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I think I, I think I remember remembering. No, I think he started in grade six or something. It was like quite young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I was, I was in grade five yeah. when when I went as well. Yeah. Oh wow, wow, that's amazing. And um. Uh, so actually, one of the sort of sub there's two sub themes of this podcast that I'm going to sort of try and touch on. Mm-hmm. One is moving. So what was it like? A lot of a lot of Lean Pop authors apparently are people who just move around um, a lot. And uh, what was it like moving to the states? It, it, it was it was interesting. It, it was a bit of a culture shock because again, you know, very different cultures. But uh, it, it was when I first landed here, I was amazed at how much not of a culture shock it was. Because this is like a little bit of explanation. Uh, I flew from from Delhi, from New Delhi, uh, to to Dulles Airport, from where there to Jacksonville, and then 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 to the University of Florida. Uh, drove there. Um, 
when I landed, uh, but my flight came through Heathrow. So when I landed in Heathrow, it was uh, being from India. What's interesting about the Heathrow airport is most of the people at Heathrow airport are of Indian origin. So you've flown eight hours and you land at this place and you go, everyone here looks Indian. And then by the time I got to the University of Florida, I got there in between semesters. So the only people who had stayed behind were the PhD students. A majority of, of, of them were actually Indians. So it was a weird thing flying all the way across and going, I'm still surrounded by Indians. This is really weird. But yeah, as the students came back, and it, it was an it was an interesting cultural shift. Um, I think it it uh, it helped me build on the solid foundation that I had gained in India, and uh, helped uh, the the American entrepreneur spirit help expand on that to 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 take it into different directions. And was it easy for you to get like a student visa and things like that? Yeah, it was. It was actually pretty easy because uh, uh, at that time when I came, it was mostly a matter of of proving that you can actually uh, pay for your school while you're here yeah, and, and I had a, I had I had all that secured so it, it it was relatively easy back then yeah for anyone for anyone watching or listening who's never moved to another country one thing they're very concerned about is how much money you have uh, <laughs> and they don't you don't need to be you don't you typically don't need to be rich but they're like do you have enough to kind of take care of yourself Right. Is, is the concern that countries have when you're coming to, which I think is a fair question, but yeah, to, 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 yeah. totally. Yeah. Uh, my, my sort of a funny story about that is I moved to the UK in 1999 with a friend of mine and neither mm-hmm. of us had enough money. So, uh, I put, I gave him literally every dollar I had in a bank transaction so he could have enough to get a print a statement. And then he did the <laughs> same thing for me, <laughs> but we did it. We were so dumb. We did it at the we were like really young. We did it at the same bank uh, within five minutes, and so the, the clerk was like, "Are you guys doing what I think you're doing?" And we're like, "Yes, it's we are." And uh, but you know, it's it's funny how how resourceful you need to do you need to be to move yep. uh, sometimes. Um, so the second the second sort of um, uh, sub theme of the podcast that I wanted to ask you about is so you you study computer science uh, at, at mm-hmm. university. Um, and you've had a you know very successful career, starting out as a software engineer and then going moving into agile and management and things like that. And uh, the question I, I ask people with a background like that often is, um, if you were starting out now in 2023 with the intention of having a career in you know software and and agile product management and things like that, would you do a full computer science degree or a university degree at all? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question because I I would say I probably won't because mm. um, I think almost almost everything you need to know is out there available for you for free. Uh, it's all, almost everything you get to self teach, you get self learn. What's interesting though is certain companies, actually a lot of companies, still requiring you to have a degree to kind of get in and actually start practicing this stuff. If, if that restriction wasn't there, I would say absolutely, you don't need to go back and get a degree. Um, I love to learn, so that's why I kept going back to college for, for, for degrees. But as far as practicing computer science goes, as far as uh, writing software goes, as far as managing software and teams goes, I do not think a degree is a requirement. And uh, how would you how would you go about learning that? Um, 
it's 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 books it's uh it's youtube it's um for, for me the the way i learned the most was actually putting the stuff into practice mm-hmm. um my my uh, I, I tell people all the time my first three months at my first real job real software engineering job taught me a lot more than four years of college did and you pick up at least for me i pick up things very quickly when i actually need to use that when i actually need to solve the problems um the the degree at at college gave me again a foundation for understanding the things i was looking at but the real learning for me was actually solving the problems actually creating solutions yeah that 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 makes a lot of sense and um and so you started out as a software engineer, but you but you moved on to kind of kind of managing teams and things like that. Yeah. And I was wondering if you do you remember like the moment when that happened or the the sort of period of time when that change happened? It's it's actually the, I I look back at it and and it's really weird for me because if you had asked me even three four years into being a developer, do you ever want to go into management? I would have said absolutely not. Hmm. I love writing code. I love creating solutions. That is what I want to do. Um, at, at some point, though, I started seeing that, hey, I can actually help other developers around me a lot more with this stuff. So that got me into more of a team lead, mm. mentor-type position. And that evolved into, um, there are all these things that are getting in these developers' way of getting work done. How can I remove those? And that became more of the management stuff. Okay, now I can actually help people since I have positional authority to remove remove these impediments. And finally, it was this thing of, well, I, I found a way of managing, uh, a cha- I chanced into a way of managing that was more analytical than than others. And that helped, kind of clicked with my brain that using flow metrics and all these things to manage teams clicked for me and it's like, oh, that this makes a lot more sense to manage systems so that people can be happy in that system and pr- produce their best work. Yeah, I'm really. Interested. That was my journey. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm really curious. We'll we'll get to talking about flow and 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 what what you mean by that uh, in in a, in, a, in a few minutes. But uh, before we do that, what are the kind of like for someone listening, let's say who's never worked as a programmer or anything like that? What are the impediments? Because you know, if you if you've worked in that space, you know very well what what they can be. But if you're completely outside it, you're like, what are these impediments that one's talking about? Like, what what can get in the way of like you're sitting at a desk, you're typing. What 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 are, what's an impediment that can happen as a programmer? Yeah, uh, let's 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 start with let's start with something very simple, right? When 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 you are thinking of a problem to solve, when you are let's say you are a solo programmer and you decide to just go build an app for yourself, you have a very clear picture of the problem you want to solve, of all the things that you need to put together to do it, and, and put 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 the put the solution out there. That, that does not sound very complex. I mean, it's complex, the actual coding of it and actual creation of it, but th- there's a certain thing of here's an idea, I work on it, and I put it out there. Now, if you scale that up, when you talk about uh, working on a team, working on working in a company, now there are other things that need to come into play. Now we're talking more and more about the quality of that app. Now we're talking about um, someone needs to go talk to their customers and figure out who they want this app or not, or what is the what is the, what what are the requirements for this? Now at the same time as you're working on this app, there are 20 other things that are going on in the company that that come in and interrupt you. Uh, you push you you actually create something, you pushed it to you try to push it to production and it breaks. 
uh, or something that you push to production two months ago breaks. Those are all things that can interrupt that one thing that you were trying to do. So that one thing that was very easy when you were working by yourself and you didn't have a lot of baggage around it becomes a lot more complicated when you have all these other things that can potentially happen and get in your way of getting work done. Anything that gets in your way of getting work done is essentially an impediment. However, you're interrupted. However, you're stopped from moving forward. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. It is sort of just, I love I love that contrast between like sort of just working on your own, and then working with other people, <laughs> you know, and then and then teams of teams, and then things like that is where that where these impediments can come in. I'm thinking about a, a, a conference I was at at Seattle years ago, um, uh, which was basically a lot of programmers, many of whom worked for big companies. Where it was like the sad, basically like unfortunately it was like the saddest conference I'd ever been to, because there were so many people who were like basically like treated like cogs in a machine uh you know they were like they were part part of a system uh that treated them like kind of like time yeah all they were was fingers and time and things yeah. like that and then budgets and things like that uh and um you know often the the impediments can be you know kind of emotional as well right where you feel yeah you know not respected where you feel used things like that. Yeah, you, even further, you're typing away at this thing and you push it out to production and you never hear about it. Right. You never find out, hey, did I actually solve the customer's problem? Uh, what are people saying about this thing that I created? Uh, well, they, I'm, I'm trying to solve these big problems are, and, and you completely lose the emotional connection to the, to, to the customer and the problem you're trying to solve and start feeling like, you know, you're a code monkey. You're just pushing code out. Um, and just just before we go on to talking about your book and 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 you know scaling agile and things like that, uh, how did you meet Dan uh, and how did you end up working with him? Uh, so when I was making that transition into management and all that, uh, that is around the time when the company where I was working brought Dan in as a consultant to help uh, us understand how value flows through our system help us un get better with that. And uh, I, I was one of the very few managers at that company at that time. So I was tasked with a work, me and another manager there. The two of us were tasked with go work with Dan and figure out how we can roll this out, how we can help others understand it. And uh, I, I this is what I was saying earlier. I really took to this analytical way of looking at things to understand how we can help people come together and, and do their best. And so he poached you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was actually, to Dan's credit, he <laughs> not even once approached me with with the poaching conversation. It was it was, it was many years later that I, I was like, okay, you know, these things that we're doing here, I think I can do it other places. I think I can do this as an independent consultant. That's when I reached out to Dan to be like, Dan, can we do this? This seems like this. This seems like it's something that I can do on myself. Can you? Can, what do you think? So yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. And um, I meant I mentioned in the introduction, but you guys, uh, you you got this great um drunk agile podcast. Yeah, it's very fun. You can see the I can see bottles of I think whiskey oh, yeah. or a bit or yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We 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 get together. Uh, we get together and. 
and have have a have a spot of whiskey and talk about all these random household things. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and you have you have guests on as well, which is which is really yep. great. Uh, and your your dog. Uh, oh yeah, Nisha. Right, she's, she's, Nisha. Yeah, Nisha's Nisha's right 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 back there. She's 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 in her usual lying down pose. Yeah, it's funny. She's I, I watched a couple of the episodes, and she's sort of the third the third star of the show. Um, <laughs> typically kind of sleeping in the corner. Uh, yeah, she is the main talk. star of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was this the, the podcast was was a was a covid baby. We we Dan and I used to get together for whiskeys to talk about the stuff in person and uh, we kind of missed doing that so we started doing that online and we're like oh, we could just record this. That's really yeah. that's really interesting actually. That reminds me of um, uh one of the sort of COVID kind of um, experiments that I enjoyed was uh, Talking Sopranos, the podcast. Um, I don't know if you heard it. Basically, it was um, uh, Michael Imperioli, who played Chris, Mm -hmm. and then Steve Sharippa, who played uh, Bobby. uh, I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Um, uh, They were planning on doing like a a, a podcast, like a show together in a studio, but they ended up doing it apart. Uh, in in their own apartments because of because of COVID, COVID. Uh, and uh, but just like you know they just they basically just love talking to each other and decided to make a podcast, uh, which is great. I think that's how Smartless started too, but with those guys with Sean Hayes and those guys again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. so yeah, COVID was the was a, was a podcast generating factory, I guess. No, uh, and, and a book generating factory as well. Uh, I can I can <laughs> attest. Um, uh, I had one at least one guest who like ended up like stuck in his parents' place in like northern Italy <laughs> for months, and he's like, "Guess I might as well write a write that book I always wanted." Yeah. To. Uh, speaking of which, so your book, um, uh, what was the inspiration for that? When did that sort of uh, project, big project, start? Um, th- there were uh, there were multiple sources for this. Um, the uh, to, to begin with the the place where Dan and I met, um, we rolled out this entire as program team by team, and at that time when we did this, there were no scaling frameworks. There was no way to say, hey, Azure works on these teams. How do we take it across the organization? There were no frameworks, so we essentially did the minimal possible thing to get every team to 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 work in a way where they could manage their own efficiency effectiveness and predictability and as a result they died or had had those things um we we called it scaling without frameworks and uh, a couple of years after that all these big bulky scaling frameworks started coming out and uh, in my head throughout that whole time and this thing of this is supposed to be a lot simpler than what we're seeing in the industry. The industry is really taking this and making this a lot more complex than it needs to be. So the the children of the idea came from there. Um, Dan also a couple of times pushed me to say you need to write a book. Uh, and and the, the final biggest push actually came from my wife who was like, you've been talking about writing a book for eight years now. Go do it. So that's, that's essentially how the, how the book came about. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's the best when you have sanction from your spouse um, <laughs> to do it, as opposed to kind of like, no, no, I have to go do this. Uh, yeah. That's that's the absolute best. And so, um, so the the title is scaling simplified a practitioner's guide to scaling flow. So uh, there's two very important terms in there. One is scaling, and one is flow. 
Um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk first, probably most people are familiar with scaling, right? It's sort of going mm -hmm. from small to big kind of yep. thing. Uh, but what's flow? Yeah, so flow, uh, flow can, you can understand flow in two different ways. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the first one, then leave it aside, and then talk about the second one a lot. First is uh, the flow, the state of flow that most creative people are familiar with. You're sitting down, nothing's bothering you, and you are in this mental state where, where work just happens. Sitting there, work just happens. That is the first form of flow. Turns out the second form of flow is just that same thing, but more measured uh, or, or more at, at a collective level or the single level. When we start working on an idea and change it into something of value, that uh, process, some, taking something that is just an idea and working on it to create value out of it, that is flow. How something enters the system and then exits the system. Anything that has an entry point into a system and an exit point from system, that thing has flow. Now, we can measure that. We can say things like, this is how long it takes for something to enter from that enters to exit the system. This is how many things are exiting the system at a given point of time. Um, this is this is how old something is in the system. This is how many things are in the system. Understanding all those with those metrics and then improving it over time, that is what this book particularly is about, flow. Uh, that is the definition of flow that I'm going after. Say, how can we improve the flow of value to customers? Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. And I know one, one thing that you and you and dad talk about on the podcast and things like that is, you know, like this, the importance of, of value to customers is like, you have to get something out. You have an idea, some, someone somewhere has some idea about something people might want, but you have to build it and get it out to them, uh, to know whether it actually has value. So there's this, 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 this concept of flow is very fascinating. We've we've had Steve Tedden on the podcast talking about mm -hmm. flow and things like that. And it's, it's so, it's so interesting how many kind of moving parts there are, but also how like, you know, when you're in the, in the creation phase, you don't know what the reception is going to be. And it's so interesting yeah. that you talk about, you know, sometimes you could be like, let's say specifically a programmer and never hear back, you know, uh, about, about the, about the, what, what happened with what you built. So is that, is that, is, is getting feedback as a sort of developer from the customer, a part of flow? Absolutely. Uh, our, our definition of flow it has three dimensions to it. Uh, first is efficiency. How quickly do get things things get across? Uh, another is predictability. Can we actually, by measuring this, get some idea of how long it will take us to get things done? But the third, equally and maybe even most importantly, is effectiveness. Are the things that we're getting done actually effective? Uh, you, you said it perfectly there. Uh, everything that we work on is potentially valuable. It's We don't know if it's valuable till we actually get it to a customer and they say, oh yeah, this looks good enough. I'll pay for that. Mm. Um, everything that we work on, every line of code that we write is, is potentially valuable. It's not valuable till someone says, oh yeah, this is good. This is what I wanted. Um, another way to look, looking, of looking at that is everything that we work on is potentially waste. We we could potentially put this out and no one might might, might use it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's so interesting. And the, and the concept of waste and kind of kind of lean kind of go together, right? Because waste isn't mm -hmm. isn't isn't just there at the end where like we created something and it 
wasn't no one actually wanted it, which is fine sometimes. You know, you try things, but there yeah. can be waste. There can be waste along the way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I, you have the, you have a great section at the beginning of your book, very evocative, where you talk about Henry Ford, uh, and and uh, was it Fordlandia or something? Fordlandia? Yeah, yeah. So I was actually wondering, just just to give a little bit of color to the to the to the uh, podcast, could you talk a little bit about that story uh, that you tell at the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the 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 book starts off with the story and. Uh, of of Henry Ford, I mean, very well respected. Uh, he had some other issues which we won't talk about, yeah. but obviously a titan of the industry, someone who transformed the way things were done, who was was definitely the uh, the the most successful car manufacturer of that time. Um, Henry Ford had this desire to own every part of the bike line. Uh, he, he wanted to be in control of everything. And the one thing that Henry Ford did not have control over was the rubber that went into the tires. So all the rubber production used to happen in Southeast Asia, um, and uh, that they had he had to pay a lot of money to secure the rubber that went into the tires. Everything else he had control over. So his his approach was well. There's a very similar climate in Brazil to South Asia. What I can just plant a rubber plantation. I can buy a whole bunch of land in Brazil, plant a rubber plantation there, and uh, I'll get my rubber from there. That in itself might not have been such a bad idea, but Ford went a step further. He had a very strict, regimented way that people worked in in Michigan, in in in, in where he had his plants, and uh, it worked. It worked really well for him. So what he decided to do was to take take the almost the exact same methods, almost all the exact same things, pick them up and transfer the exact same methods to the rubber plantation that that he bought in Brazil. And the name of the plantation was was Fordlandia. To, to tell you how full of himself he was there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Over time, as they were trying to 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 get this thing going, all the same thing, you know, the the the, the eight-hour work week, uh, paying people greater wages than that they were paid otherwise, having strict rules like no alcohol on the uh, uh, in there, and then having even religious services the same way uh, they did in in Michigan, they implemented all these rules, and over time. The, the the local folks actually started revolting against this because it was not their way of life. Uh, it was just something that was that was taken. There was a lift and shift. We took this this work there. This it should definitely work here. Uh, and this big framework that was imposed on them uh, actually caused a revolt. Now Ford eventually had to abandon uh, the town and uh, sell it back to the Brazilian government for, for a major loss. Uh, an interesting detail of this is not a single drop of rubber that was what was produced in Fordlandia ever made it into a Ford car. So it was wow. it was a huge big mistake, and all of all because he tried to do a lifted ship of the method that he had. And so, what's the lesson for scaling that we should draw from that? <laughs> the lesson for scaling is just because it, just because people are saying that this one thing worked there really well doesn't mean that we just pick that up and apply it we copy paste does not work for scaling copy paste is is 
every context is different. Every culture is different. Every team is different. Uh, every organization is different. Sure, there are similarities, but a simple copy-paste will not work. We have to be a lot more thoughtful about it. Yeah, that's a really that's a really great kind of tagline. Like you know, copy-paste does not work for scaling. Um, yeah. uh, you know, at any time any time you kind of get people involved, uh, things get things get complicated. Um, and uh, so Kanban obviously plays a, a big role in in what you're talking about with flow and stuff like that. So. Yeah. For anyone who's unfamiliar with that, I was wondering if you could just take a minute to talk about what what Kanban is. Yeah, uh, for for and I, I probably won't be able to do justice to it here as much. I'll try my best. For those who want to learn more, please check out prokanban.org. That's where you'll find all the resources on Kanban. Um, it, in its in its simplest terms, in its simplest terms, Kanban is under is optimizing the flow of value through your system. It's saying that. We have, uh, we have, it takes us this long to get things through our system right now. Let's optimize that. Um, here is the flow of value. This, these are all the stages it went, it goes through. Let's limit the number of things in these stages. Let's understand the rules that things uh, have to follow in order to move through these stages. And let's tweak those rules. Uh, let's let's measure how long it takes us to get things done. Let's. Measure how many things we're getting done. Let's act on things when uh, they're taking too long. Let's actively manage the items in our workflow. So essentially, Kanban is three things. Visualizing your workflow, actively managing items in your workflow, and then improving the workflow. Um, it's 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 a lot less complicated than it sounds from the outside. You know, and but when you know that's that's a, what a great description. Thank you very much for that. And it's 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 um. It's uh, just one one thing I'll say so for people who sort of like maybe have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. You know, a, a typical kind of the idea of a Kanban board is you have columns mm -hmm. uh, that are named, um, and you flow from left to right, uh, and you might you might sort of like it, it might be a sticky note on a wall yeah. that goes from like, you know, what, what let me, I'm just looking at your book here that goes from like you know up next to analyzing to creating to validating to done for example. Um, and so the thing moves across there mm -hmm. and the, 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 this sort of thing that I find super fascinating is you, like you mentioned, how much time does it take and things like that? Uh, as soon as you start adding, and uh, you've mentioned, you've mentioned a couple of times, like metrics, like doing analytical work, kind of things like that. But of course we bring those concepts to the tasks. Mm -hmm. And so actually like when problem that you can end up with is like kind of like thinking that you're measuring things that you're you're actually not measuring anything things like that there's the kind of meta level that can come in uh uh that that can be very damaging to flow yeah absolutely and and this is why this is why i like to stick with the base metrics of flow of like because they they all point towards something is going off if those metrics look wrong it's something is going off in, a, in the flow of value to customers. If something is going off, that is the point at which I, I personally love working on teams. That is the point at which I want to get the team together and be like, hey folks, something's went going off here. What do we need to do to fix it? It's not that uh, this task was assigned to Len and it's taking too long. Len, what are you going to do about that? No, we are part of a team. This there's something obvious, something, this is either too complex too big, whatever it is, how do we work with Len to help them out as a team 
so that we can make this better. Um, it's it's giving you an early signal of things that might go wrong, and us as the team coming together to 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 actually tackle that. The um the uh, I'm just looking at this at these five stages that I mentioned that are in your book. You know, up next, analyzing, yeah. creating, validating, done, uh, and. Uh, I'm really curious about the validating stage. Uh, what what is what is validation in a team? So, for example, that's that's producing something. Yeah. Um, so, so just before I get into that, just yeah. it's that is just an example. Obviously, everyone's board is going to look different. Yeah. Uh, to do doing done is a perfectly valid board as well. Yeah. But what 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 you're talking about with validating is uh, it could be. It could mean one of two things, it, depending on the context of the team. For some teams, validating and verifying are the same thing, mm. which is, hey, did we actually do the thing that we said we will do? Uh, I, I wrote all the score, let me test it, let me figure out, hey, th th does this match the the initial requirements that we had, uh, what we understood the requirements to be? Sometimes validation and verification are the same thing. Sometimes, though, validation is I gave this to the customer and let me validate with the customer. Is this the thing you wanted? Is this the actual thing that you said that, hey, I, I wanted this thing? This is, this is what you requested. So it could be either of those things, depending on the context of the team. Yeah, no, that's that, that's really interesting. Uh, the idea of like, uh, you know, there's this sort of like internal validation, like I'm a manager. I gave you some requirements. Did you actually do that in the end? And then there's like the customer who was like probably like you know the initial impetus in the first place. And did they get? Did they actually get what they wanted uh, yeah. in the end? Um, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, and that's that's the beauty of Kanban. It's like whatever columns, whatever stages you need, mm -hmm. uh, you can have them there, and you can measure between all those stages what takes the longest time. What it means to improve. And uh, just just on that note, just to, to introduce one 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 more concept uh, into this before we move on, um, uh, because there's just so much so much detail in your book, and it's all it's all sort of you know done done in a very sort of uh, instructive order. I have to say, very very good. Uh, but what's what's pull? What's pull? Yeah, that's great. Uh, there, I've mentioned this a couple of times of limiting the number of things you're working on. So when I, when I want to train, take the train all the way around and come and answer your question, get it out. If you're limiting the number of things you're working on at a given time, what you're really saying is we as a team can handle five things at a time effectively. If, if it's more than five, things get too frantic and uh, we cannot pay enough attention to the things we're working on. If it's way less than five, then some people are just sitting idle and we don't have a proper going through our system. So let's say we have come up with a number at which we work most optimally. Let's say that's five. Whenever we finish something, let's say we had five things active, we finished one thing. Now we're at four, the number of things active, active in the system are four. That is a signal to the world that we are ready to pull in another thing. Mm. But that limiting that whip creates what's called a pull system. Now we can pull something in. That's very different from a push system. A lot of developers, a lot of teams are used to working in a push system where whether you have capacity to take work on or not, the work just shows up. It's like, here's work, go work on it. 
a pull system is when the team figures out what their optimal capacity to work is, and when they are under that active capacity, they pull the next thing in. For for optimal flow, we need to be working in a pull system. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I hadn't quite, I mean, I'd heard the term before, but I hadn't quite internalized it in, in the way that I now have. Thank you very much for that. That's really good. That, that yeah, when you're, when you're sort of like, setting up a kind of like team structure and you're sort of working with a lot of different people in a lot of different teams, sort of knowing who's got capacity, which team has capacity. If that's when you, like you might have all these plans, uh, but they, there needs to be capacity from the people to, to make it happen uh, before before you can get those people to do it. Um, yeah, even even at a personal level, you can, uh, you can think about it. You will probably have a to-do list of the things you want to do around the house. You can't do all 10 things on that list all at the same time. Probably go one by one. When you get one crossed off, then you go, okay, now I can pull the next one. Get the next one crossed off, then I can pull the next one. Uh, I can't help but relate a personal anecdote. So um, uh, that reminds me, uh, a friend of mine uh, got married years ago. This was like 20 years ago. And I was invited over to their their house. And uh, his spouse had put up sticky notes all around the house of things for him to do and it was it was it was like at the same time as it was kind of like it was it was just hilarious they were figuring out how to be married and um we went out got drunk and came back and my friend went to sleep and i took down all the sticky notes uh but it was it was like the exact opposite of pole it was just all push 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 yeah uh they worked it out Hopefully, they both got a pull system. Yes. Yeah, they, I think I think they ended up with a proper pull system, but that was like just kind of like the complete push everywhere. This reminder all around of all these things that you've been been demanding of you, uh, but with no regard to kind of like what you actually have capacity for, or what should be done next, and and things like that. Um, uh, and so, the, the, in the last part of the interview, we talk about the person's uh, the uh, the guest's uh, experience writing. So you've written this big, really good book. Uh, it's a lot of work to write a book. Uh, what was your approach to that? Um, since since I had the idea for this for a while, I had here and there written some blogs that written some essays that were sitting around. Um, so I, I kind of knew where I wanted to take the book. Um, but the the discipline of actually sitting down and writing this and compiling this was missing for a while. Um, so. Uh, when 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 my wife twisted my arm and said, "You actually need to go write this," uh, I did start writing, and then it sat in the corner for a couple of months. And I eventually got into the habit of of saying, "Today I have X thousand words written." Mm-hmm. Um, I would just draw a quick word count, and I would literally put it up on the whiteboard right next to me. Being a Kanban person, I always have a whiteboard next to me. Uh, the, I, I would write down the count of words that I started with up there, and I would say by the end of today, this count needs to be up, up uh, at least two thousand more. And uh, I would I would somehow find the time to do that. And and it's funny you have you have your whatever you're writing, whatever tool you're using to write it. Uh, I, I I use Sigil for a bit, and uh, I would I would run run the word count. Repeatedly, repeatedly running the word count, and, and sometimes I would get more than the two thousand done. Sometimes I'll get less than the two thousand done. But 
uh, it depended it depended exactly on the flow of how well I was writing. But for me, putting that number up and kind of keeping track of it, because I knew I wanted the book to be somewhere around 40,000 words, something like that. Putting that number up and making it very visual for myself to go, I need to keep making progress is what helped me quite a bit. That's really great. That's a really great tactic. I got to say, I'm very sympathetic to that. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it can seem to sort of maybe someone who hasn't done something like this before can seem kind of mechanistic and stuff like that. But like numbers can actually really help with motivation and feeling productive and just getting you going. Uh, some numbers. The number that I think is the most misleading is time. Uh, typically people like, so I remember I did, I wrote a doctorate years ago and, um, uh, and lots of friends who were doing, you know, doctorates as well around me. And the biggest mistake I saw people make was the number of hours they were going to work during the day. I'm going to work for this number of hours. And it's like, okay, but like you kind of cheat a little bit and then like there's coffee and lunch and then there's, you know, checking the news and blah, blah, blah. But like number of pages read. Sure. It might be big big font that day, <laughs> but like, you know, but like, you know, the number of pages read, number of words written, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's one of the really important things to manage is yourself in, in the writing process and feeling productive. I got my, I got my thousand words out today. They might have all sucked. I might hit delete on them all tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I got my thousand words out and you know, you mm -hmm. can, you can feel like the, the managing your feelings is actually sort of one of these funny things that becomes so important with writing because particularly because I think, uh, you know, like, like, you know, it, it's just so independent typically, uh, yeah. there's, there's other people in the process at the end. There's maybe other people in the process, mm -hmm. even along the way, but like, while you're writing, it's completely you, uh, and there's no one else can do it for you. Uh, and and uh, and and managing your feelings through numbers is actually like, but pick the right ones. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you get this little, as you were saying, you get this little, you know, dopamine hit. Yeah, of, I hit the number, great. Mm -hmm. And that makes you come back tomorrow to try mm -hmm. to do it again. And there will be days when you won't hit the number. It, absolutely, there will be. But there will also, if you keep at it, there will also be days where you're going to double or triple that number. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Depending on your flow. Uh, and and the book the book is just so good. Uh, congratulations on on getting it out. Thank you. It's so great. Um, the uh, the last question I always ask on the podcast if the guest has done something on LeanPub is while you were using LeanPub, if there was one thing, one magical feature you could ask us to build for you, whatever it is, or if there was one thing that had you shaking your fist, damn you, LeanPub, <laughs> you suck. Why is this broken or or why is this so slow? If there's anything you could ask us to fix, build or fix for you, what would you ask us to do? One, I, first of all, congratulations for building a great platform because it it lines up with the way I think of the world, which is doing little things, lean things, and, and getting things done. If if I could ask you for a magical feature, it would be, can I do the same thing that I do for for uh, for written books, uh, for uh, for audiobooks? Can I? Record a chapter of an audiobook and release that. I require the next chapter and release that. That that might be an interesting way to take this because uh, as soon as I had released the book, there were at least at least ten people who reached out saying, "Is it available in audiobook?" It's like, "Oh, 
uh, I don't know of a lean way to produce this other than go record the whole thing and then put it out. That's that's really interesting. I'm going to think about that. Um, so we do we do have a uh, a packages feature, uh, where you can sell arbitrary digital files along with your book. So if you do record an audio book, you can you can make a package where it's like the book plus the audio book. Um, yeah, uh, but but um, but we have no we have not spelled out anywhere a process for doing that, and we offer no tools to help that. It's just people just show up with audiobook files. Um, and, uh, and, uh, that's, that's very interesting that we could sort of think about because it's, it's a curious thing, uh, because, you know, lean books are often written in progress and they can all be up but one of our main sort of claims to fame is that we like make it easy to update books, which can be difficult on other places. Some platforms actually make you pay if you want mm -hmm. to be able to update, update what you're, what you're offering. Uh, and the challenge of like a kind of in progress audiobook is actually something that I've never really I've never really thought about, um, but I will now. So thank you very much for asking for that. Yeah. Again, uh, thank you for building the platform. It's 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 a great it's a great platform. It lines up completely with the way I think about the world. Oh, well, thanks very much for that. That's that's so fantastic. Uh, the book is uh, scaling simplified. You can find it on LeanPub. I'm sure you can maybe find it somewhere else eventually too. Uh, but thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me and to talk to all of us. And uh, thank you very much for the really great book. Yeah, thank you for having me. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.